Welcome to the Freedom Hut. This is the Best of Buck Daily Podcast. The top stories of the day from the Buck Sexton Show. For more Buck, head to BuckSexton.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, friends. We can count the days now pretty quickly, can't we, before Election Day. And yet this entire week, pretty much all the political oxygen in the room, so to speak, is going to be taken up by this ongoing Supreme Court justice hearing as if the political stakes couldn't be any higher. We have Democrats watching their favorite toy of policy. Right? It's supposed to be a revered, uh, a revered judge, a number of judges who interpret and apply the Constitution. But as we know, it really is just the Democrat super legislature. They love it. They think it's fantastic as long as it gives them what they want. This is the jurisprudence of a five year old. It should be that way because I want it that way. That's really what the living constitution left wing activist judge approach to all this is. But the good news for all of us watching is that Amy Coney Barrett is smarter and a better lawyer than all these people who are questioning her. I'd also say that some of the members of the Senate Judiciary, as you're seeing them and, and watching them question, and they're deep into their 80s. I, I just want to know, is, is this now an expectation that everyone should have, that when you're in everyone else, usually you think about retiring or, or, or moving into other capacities in your life, but not if you're Dianne Feinstein or Leahy. You get to do this until you're 100, it seems. Okay. Uh, there's, I guess, no surprise then that they pretend that Joe Biden being almost 80 when he becomes president is somehow not indicative of, of possible problems with his health and his acuity. Regardless, Coney Barrett doing a great job today. Uh, they kept coming at her with the same version of a question that she had already answered, which is effectively how how would you uh, how would you deal with this case or what do you think of this precedent? So you have no thoughts on the subject, Dianne Feinstein condescendingly and very stupidly asked her after Barrett had already explained a dozen times that as a sitting federal judge, she isn't allowed to say what she would decide on specific cases. She just keeps having to say it because ultimately this is about Democrats grandstanding an election cycle for their own purposes while pretending that they care about the Constitution while making this big show of how much this is about some broader principle. When it's just not. Uh, ACB did a phenomenal job today. Uh, you had to watch her to really appreciate some of the, the nuances and the, the deft manner in which she parried all these different assaults, all these different efforts to undermine, to entrap. She's just better at this than they are. She's just smarter. Thank God. Absolutely qualified and a female because, you know, if she was male, you know this. The Democrats would come forward with some version of he touched me a long time ago, even if I can't prove that I was ever in the same state as him. And the Democrats would all say a credible allegation. Destroying the word credible in the process, an allegation with no underlying facts, evidence or support shouldn't be considered credible just because somebody makes it and has a, a, a quiver in their voice. And looks like they're about to tear up. That doesn't mean that someone's telling the truth, Libs. We found that out during the uh, effort to destroy Kavanaugh. And also, I think Democrats are really seeing the right 
is entirely unified on this. There, there is no dissent. Anybody who is saying don't push through Amy Coney Barrett is a fraud and a hack helping the other side for their own purposes. They don't think it helps conservatism or constitutionalism or even the rule of law. We are absolutely united on ACB getting through as well as calling her ACB because it makes the people who created the cult of RBG so very, very angry. It is it is fun to watch them melt down over that. You can't use her initials. Watch us. So this is a moment when the Democrats learn that there is a price to be paid. And I think it's a very important lesson. The price to be paid for what they did to Kavanaugh, which, as I've said to you, radicalized many people, in fact, really turned my thinking much more toward wartime conservatism in our politics. Can't give in to the other side, must must win. We're not at a point where a truce or an armistice is advisable or even really possible in our politics. They have to lose and understand that the insanity, the far left lunacy that they continue to push for is incompatible with our system. That's all there is to it. And that's why pushing through this nomination, really just fulfilling the constitutional obligation of an open Supreme Court seat with a Senate in session and a president who's already made the appointment. This is the definition of constitutional. And yet they still play all these games saying they want to depoliticize the court by deeply politicizing it. This is exactly what we would expect. You know, this is like saying that the executioner is the one who is giving clemency because he releases the person from the burden of being in prison. I mean, it's a real twisted way of approaching it, isn't it? We're going to depoliticize the court. By making sure that everybody understands we view, meaning the Democrats view the court as a political instrument necessary for them to pursue their whims and and whatever mechanisms of power they think they need. And that's all that it is. Judge Barrett was particularly strong today on those broad philosophical questions. She pointed out that she interprets the Constitution, that she will not, in fact, make decisions based upon her own beliefs about what is good. When we talk about beliefs, that's that's always implying a level of of just judgment and choice between different matters, not about what is factual, what is what is necessarily objective. Right. There's a there's an element of subjectivity in it when you're entering into what you think would be most fair, for example, as a judge, that's irrelevant. What does the law say? What does the system we have here that people have voted for legislators to write and put into place and that is all held together by our Constitution? What does that system produce based on the facts, based on the competing interests here? That's it. There should be something really mechanical in the thinking about a good judge. There should be something that almost feels like it's a uh, a Swiss watch ticking off the seconds. It shouldn't be. It's not a it's not a creative process. They're watchmakers, not oil painters. That's what a judge should be. And here's what Judge Barrett says specifically about that. Play 10. I interpret the Constitution as a law that I interpret its text as text and I understand it to have the meaning that it had at the time people ratified it. So that meaning doesn't change over time, and it's not up to me to update it or infuse my own policy views into it. It's very straightforward, isn't it? The law is the law. 
even if I don't necessarily like a law, unless it is unconstitutional, I have to apply the law as written. Notice that that is somehow in our upside down world of the media and the Democrat Party. That has somehow become a controversial position. When in truth, it's the most straightforward, it's the most obvious position one could ever have. Right. The law is the law. It's almost it's like a tautology. It's a statement of fact of the obvious. What does the other side do? Well, the law is a lot of competing things and there's societal interest and pressure. And then there's this other stuff. And it's kind of like you're just making a souffle with everything in the kitchen and whoop, whatever comes out of the ovens, what you get. No, it's not how this is supposed to go. And I guess if anything worthwhile is being taken from these hearings it's that individuals uh, should see the difference in underlying judicial philosophy between the left and the right in this country that the left the democrat party really does embrace a utilitarian view of the supreme court and really of legal interpretation in general it's a means to an end it's all just about uh, about competing forces and maneuvering to get what you want there's no agreed upon principle. There's no statute. There's no law that's there that we just admit is there. It's always can we find a way around it? Can we change the language? Can we reinterpret it to mean something else that we would prefer? This undermines the very foundation of the law itself. And that's what the left continues to do. One of the ways that they've been attacking Judge Barrett is to suggest that she would be the second coming of Scalia, which... I think anybody in the legal profession could be so lucky. I mean, Scalia was a brilliant man and also a, a larger than life figure when it came to the law and his time on the Supreme Court. And she's also saying, look, I clerked for the guy. I, I appreciate what he did. But here's who you're getting. If you confirm me, play 11. Justice Scalia, he was an originalist, right? Yes, he was. People say that you're a female Scalia. What would you say? I would say that Justice Scalia was obviously a mentor. And as I said um, in the, when I accepted the president's nomination, that his philosophy is mine too. You know, he was a very eloquent um, defender of originalism. And that was also true of textualism, which is the way that I approach statutes and in their interpretation. And similarly to what I just said about originalism, for textualism, the judge approaches the text as it was written with the meaning it had at the time and doesn't infuse our own meaning into it. But I want to be careful to say that if I'm confirmed, you would not be getting Justice Scalia. You would be getting Justice Barrett. And that's so because originalists don't always agree, and neither do textualists. Justices Scalia and Thomas disagreed often enough that my friend Judge Amul Thapar teaches a class called Scalia versus Thomas. You know, it's not a mechanical exercise. Well, I'll wait till the movie comes out. <laughs> so there she is explaining the, the separation even now. Now she's saying it can't be too mechanical, which is true. But it also can't be a creative process. Right? It can't be a process by which you're imbuing into the law. So the separation between a textualist and an originalist getting deep into the weeds is one thing. The separation between left and right is here is the law. What does it say? What does it mean? And what what precedents apply? And the left is like, well, no, we think it'd be better for society if we just said the following. Oh, OK. 
That's what they do. And uh, perhaps the best example of this is the one that's most central in many ways to this confirmation. There's been a ton of talk about Obamacare, but that's just the Democrat senators trying to grandstand here in an election cycle. Obamacare, Obamacare, healthcare. that's all they want to talk about, even though this has nothing really to do with ACB. Uh, but the other issue is, of course, abortion, one in which when you look at the Roe v. Wade and even Planned Parenthood v. Casey, you have two Supreme Court decisions that are just legally indefensible. And everyone everyone knows this who understands anything and is objective. But the left really, really likes those things, does not want that to change. People might feel very differently uh, about state government in, let's say, California, where they would, I'm sure, have zero restrictions on abortion for all nine months of a pregnancy when next door in Utah, they would, I don't know, I'm guessing they might enact, if not a ban on abortion outright, uh, a ban after, you know, 10 weeks or 20 weeks, three weeks, oh, yeah, three months, whatever, whatever it may be. So they don't want to get to that point where they have to actually defend this. They like they like just pointing to Roe v. Wade and saying it's in the Constitution. When we all know it is flatly not in the Constitution. Uh, we all know that it's actually not something that anybody should think was a constitutional right in the first place. And then there's one of my favorite ways that ACB was slapping down the various attempts to get after her today. She was borrowing it from her predecessor. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Best of Buck Daily Podcast. The top stories of the day from the Buck Sexton Show. Judge, I'm I'm deeply concerned about ways in which your approach to something that may sound abstract to folks watching stare decisis or precedent, that means your approach to reviewing and reconsidering and possibly overturning long settled cases may overturn some of the very principles for which Justice Ginsburg fought her entire adult life. Principles that protect settled fundamental rights for all Americans. What might this mean? Cases like Griswold versus Connecticut, that established married couples have a right to obtain and use contraception in the privacy of their own home, may be in danger of being struck down. You could say may and then put pretty much anything in the future behind it. And technically, we don't know. But that's absurd. Right? No one's going to strike down contraception. There's no there's no push to do that. There's no effort to do that. It's just not reality. But they're trying to really scare people around this. They're trying very hard to terrify people around the issue of of contraceptives. And uh, they're doing it with a whole bunch of things. Health care uh, with with gay marriage. I mean, you know, they think that ACB is going to come in there and everything that the left holds dear will all of a sudden be up in smoke. Now, that's not true. And they don't really believe that. But they're saying it anyway because they're trying to generate as much fear and outrage of this nomination as they possibly can. And one of the best tricks that I've seen Amy Coney Barrett use to deflect all of this, and it's not new, but it's great that she gets to call it this, is the RBG rule. She is citing Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her confirmation when she was asked questions as precedent for why she will not, because remember, she's also a Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals judge right now, ACB is, she will not weigh in on something preemptively to tell you how she would or would not rule on a case. And that's what um, other than the gaseous speeches from Democrats about, how you know, the Constitution means and the libs, you know, the rights of a woman to blah, 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 a lot of that going on. Other than that, it's all. Well, what do you think about this case? What would you do here? What would you do here? 
And it's pretty much ACB saying, well, that case was decided, so that is now the law. That case is decided, so that is now also the law. She's not going to play their game, but they're, I, I, it's tough to tell if they really think they're going to trip her up. If they do, they're delusional. Or if what's really happening here is that the Democrats are just trying to ask these questions and then use the refusal to answer, in this case, applying a huge and hypocritical double standard, applying the refusal for ACB to answer as, as though that's some or, or insisting that that's some uh, some evidence of inconsistency, deception. It's just not true. But it seems that that's what they're trying to do. ACB had to remind them today, you want judges, you don't want legal pundits up here. Play eight. Trump made claims of voter fraud and suggested he wanted to delay the upcoming election. Does the Constitution give the president of the United States the authority to unilaterally delay a general election under any circumstances? Does federal law? Well, Senator, if that question ever came before me, I would need to hear arguments from the litigants and read briefs and consult with my law clerks and talk to my colleagues and go through the opinion writing process. So, you know, if if I give off the cuff answers, then I would be basically a legal pundit. And I don't think we want judges to be legal pundits. I think we want judges to approach cases thoughtfully and with an open mind. Now, that's a perfect answer, but it also establishes something and shows you something. The Democrats, the libs do want legal pundits on the bench. They would if they had their way, they would put people that go on MSNBC and say, yes, Trump is a traitor, Russia collusion. I was a federal prosecutor before and Trump should be in prison. They want one of those people on the bench gives the Democrat base whatever they want. So it's funny because she says, Comey Barrett, Coney Barrett says, uh, you don't want pundits. Do you ju- do you a senator? And the real answer in the senator's mind is, oh, no, we want liberal pundits to be the Supreme Court justices. Thanks for listening to the best of Buck Daily podcast. Get more from Buck by following him on social media at Buck Sexton on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And don't forget to visit BuckSexton.com. Speaking of courts, we've got uh, less than three weeks before the election or maybe it's three weeks to the, you know, three weeks of time. Yeah. Uh, Do we ever get to get an answer about court packing? I mean, I I just want to know, can can we get they're never going to get this answer, huh? They're not going to tell us. They will not address the Democrats, Biden, Harris. They will not tell the American people what their plan is on this incredibly important issue. They're just they're just not not going to tell us no no interest in telling us that's that's how they're going to play this. Well, we all know why. Right. We all understand what the reasoning is behind this. If the American people found out that and when I say the American people, remember, we always have to have to break this down into segments. There are crazy lib Democrats who, if uh, Biden was walking around uh, dressed like Joseph Stalin, grew a funky mustache and said that he wanted to go full commie. There are Democrats who would still a lot of them would still vote for him. Anything but Trump. And I'm being serious. A lot of Democrats would still vote for Joe Biden. Even they'd say, yeah, whatever, you know, Kamala will take over and we'll push him aside. So we're not in a normal political time here. But for those Americans who are still watching, observing and trying to make their decision about which way they'd go here, uh, it, it, it is not confidence inspiring that Democrats who have spent four years complaining about how Trump is destroying our sacred institutions would be willing to upend the institution of the Supreme Court in this way. 
right? For obvious political reasons. That's why I think it's so interesting that they're they're now just trying to act like it doesn't matter or we, we don't have a right to know. I mean, Biden said, what was it over the weekend? When asked about this by a reporter, he said they simply do not have a right to know. The American people don't have a right to know, which is pretty stunning when you think about it. But that's where we are. Don Lemon brought this up with Chris Cuomo. Bro Cuomo, do we even lift Don? Actually, Don probably spent some time in the gym. But uh, here's here's how this exchange went, because remember, Don Lemon will say the quiet part out loud a lot. Play three. I'm not surprised by any of it. I'm just sick of it. But listen, I got why are you why are you like pushing him about court packing? Because you're doing the Republicans work. No, I'm not. Yeah, that's a legitimate the, question. It's not. A, well, look, it's not a legitimate question in that. What? During the Go debate, ahead. the vice president raised a question. The moderator didn't raise a question. Plus, it is this. This is something that um, this is a hypothetical, whether or not Joe Biden has said twice at least on tape that I've seen, how he feels about court packing. And I think it's a distraction from the Republicans. And why doesn't he answer it? Because he doesn't have to, just because they, he doesn't have to well, answer He doesn't it. have to answer it, yeah, but you don't so, think it's going to affect people's no, trust quotient? No, because people are, aren't worried about that. People are concerned about, if you want to know specifically about the court, people are concerned about the Republicans switching and being hypocrites on saying this is an election year. That's what people are concerned about. Isn't that amazing? I, I hope you really were digging deep in there and, and listening to what was being said. Don Lemon, it's just all it's just all verbal nonsense. It's just garbage coming out of that guy's well, what is he even talking? It's not a legitimate question because the thing and the blah 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 what? There was never really even an answer there. It's not legitimate because the vice president and the thing and the place and the who's and the what's and the what? Nonsense. Total nonsense. But they don't have an argument, folks. But they're so desperate. The only thing he said there that was truthful, though, was you're doing the Republicans work for them. That's right. Getting the truth on that question would be helpful to Republicans. And so the Democrat media, of which Cuomo and Lemon are a part, the Democrat media makes a choice. The truth is less important than the desired outcome. It's almost like their judicial philosophy, right? What is actually legal is irrelevant. What we want to be legal is all that matters. Journalists are supposed to be about getting to the truth, but here journalists are telling you that they don't want to help Republicans, even if that means that they will be complicit in the suppression of truth about a presidential candidate like Joe Biden. And then you have uh, remember, remember Tim Kaine was Hillary Clinton's running mate. I mean, what a you know. He's like a guy that you've seen in a few 80s movies and never knew his name. And you're like, who's that actor that was kind of in the thing? And you saw him and that's Tim Kaine as vice president. You're like, what? Who is this guy again? What's he doing? But he's also making the same former VP candidate. Uh, Tim Kaine also making the same claim here that, you know, Biden, Biden shouldn't have to answer the court packing question because reasons play two. Well, I haven't asked him, but I have a pretty good idea, Bill, because it's not his business. The Constitution gives no power to the president or vice president to pack the court. I heard Senator Ernst say Joe needs to say he won't pack the court. It's not a presidential responsibility. Congress, according to Article One of the Constitution, sets the composition. So that's why it's it's not even part of. But, the but, but, he can, plan. He can. but also there's veto power. 
So he could block legislation, right? So well, we're going to pretend now that that the leader of the of a party, the, whether it's the Democrat or the Republican, should not speak to the priorities of that party and what it's trying to accomplish and what the legislative branch would do. Notice the artificial separation. That's a Congress thing. Okay, well, you're the president. Are you going to support it? Does the president? I mean, we call it Obamacare. You notice that we don't call it Pelosi care. But health care is actually a province uh, from a legislative perspective of the Congress. Right. But we call it Obamacare, not Pelosi care, because Obama was out there selling it and pushing for it and worked with the Democrats to ram through that nightmare of a bill. But now they create this artificial distinction where, oh, it's not the president's job to pack the court. So he doesn't have to say whether he thinks it's a good idea or not. It's the Congress's only. It's not relevant. Notice they're willing to make pathetic arguments. These are pathetic arguments. These are laughable, flimsy arguments that people in prominent positions who are very wealthy and have influence among Democrats, among the whole country, unfortunately, will say with a straight face because there's not they're desperate and they want what they want and they're not able to make a principled reasoned argument for what it is that they're trying to get out of all of this. So just take note of that. What's going to happen if on election night, I've really been thinking about this. What's going to happen if on election night there's not a winner declared? Now, I would go so far as to say that I think this is likely. I would go so far as to say that I believe this is what's going to happen. Now, it's a prediction. I could be wrong. But I understand Americans usually expect November 3rd to be the date that will determine the outcome of the presidential contest. But it might not be that simple this time because there are realistic scenarios, perhaps even likely ones, as I say. I I think it is likely where we do not know who's going to be president for the next four years after Election Day. There are going to be razor thin uh, vote margins, my friends, in about a half a dozen swing states. I'm very when I say razor thin, we know one percent of the electorate. Overall, nationally, 2% of the electorate overall nationally is going to determine this whole thing. And there are already changes in the processes that have been placed for a long time because of the COVID pandemic that could add to the chaos. So mail-in ballots are the most likely reason for a delayed election night result. You already have five states with mail-in only elections, Colorado, Hawaii, Washington, Oregon, and Utah. But there are recent additions to that list Because of COVID-19 fears, New Jersey and California are going all mail in because people are so terrified of COVID. That's right. Terrified to wait mostly outside, socially distanced in a line. This is where we are. Uh, But there are also a lot of states that, as we know, allow absentee ballots, which uses the mail. And so Democrats are playing this whole game where they're acting like mail-in ballots, absentee ballots. It's all the same. No, universal mail-in ballots means that everybody on the voter registration rolls gets sent a live ballot. You can just fill it out, sign it, send it in, in the mail. And we all know that there are shockingly outdated voter registration rolls in many, many states. We're talking about millions of, of improper ballots going out if this happens enough nationwide. So that's on the, that's the concern about There's a concern about fraud and there's also a concern about delay. All right. Delay. The mail, as we know, is not is not perfect. 
the mail uh, could could end up slowing things down. And there may well be uh, from the 4th of uh, November until I think it's December 12th. Uh, that's how long it can take for the state to even certify their their results. And given all these mail in ballots that some states are even going to count if they're postmarked after the election, you have a lot of ballots out there that could be filled out, harvested, filled out, sent, and no one's ever going to know. Okay, no one's ever going to know the difference. They're not going to look into this. It's very hard to prove. And you're also going to have a, a very high stress put on the Postal Service to get all this stuff done at this time, millions more ballots than ever before. So this is what led to the midsummer news cycle. You remember this, full of all those conspiracy theories that Trump was defunding the post office and there were all these hysterical social media posts shared all over the internet claiming that the post office boxes were being intentionally moved and mail sorting machines destroyed all as a part of some trumpian scheme they alleged to defund and disable the mail and prevent mail and ballots from arriving so look even though that post office conspiracy furor has died down for now there are going to be issues because of the unprecedented amount of voters entrusting their ballots to a mailman or a mailbox. I guess the mailman takes it out of the mailbox. You've got over a million mail-in votes likely to be disqualified and discarded, according to analysis that's out there from a bunch of places, including USA Today. Because all they have to do is have a missing signature and doesn't count. How many people do you think? How many times have you sent in a check where you forgot to sign it? That's happened to me. It happens all the time, right? People forget. They fill it out. and They forget to sign it. And that means the ballots will be rejected. Just this year, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania rejected about 60,000 primary ballots between the three of them. Those only three states. Those are battleground states, folks. That's in the general. So you have the delayed ballot issue. You have discarded ballots. You have possible fraud. And then you have different states with different deadlines about when they can receive absentee ballots and oversee ballots. So if the COVID-19 pandemic pushes mail-in voting to record numbers, this, this could be stressing the system to a breaking point. And all of this is happening, as we know, during an election that's the most contentious in living memory. Democrats are still clinging to this belief that Trump didn't really win the 2016 election in a, a fair and square. And they're already spreading panic that Trump will refuse to step down if he loses. We've even heard that insanity during debates from the moderator. What would you do if President Trump, Vice President Pence, what would you do if Trump didn't step down? It's madness. Without a concession from Democrats on election night, which I think is a realistic scenario, I think that's the probable scenario, the various vote churning and litigation machines of both sides will kick into overdrive. Some states have all the way up until December 12th to certify their state election results. That means there could be weeks of gamesmanship and court battles over discarded ballots, extending deadlines and other inevitable voting issues. The national focus could also quickly turn to the prospect of a contingent election. That's right. That's a real thing, folks. Could occur if neither side ends up winning outright the Electoral College. Uh, now, I don't think this will happen, but people will be talking about it. A contingent election has occurred three times in the past, but it's been a long time. 1801, 1825 and 1837. Now, there is a process in place for this scenario. It's been successful in keeping presidential succession going in the past when it had to be used. Essentially, the presidential election process in a contingent election is handed over to the House of Representatives. Then it all comes down to how many individual states a candidate wins. The Senate, in turn, picks the vice president, who, as we know, 
is president of the Senate. So that kind of makes sense. But these are very volatile times, my friends. And if we don't have a winner on election night, and I don't think we will. That doesn't mean I don't think Trump's going to win the election. I just don't think we're going to have a winner on election night because Democrats are going to refuse to concede based on mail-in ballots that who knows how many are really out there. But the allegations of cheating, tyranny, a stolen election, they're going to be screamed on TV screens, newspapers, websites all across the country. And you're going to have vast hordes of angry voters who are going to take to the streets in protest, all from what we've seen Uh, You know, this summer from Biden and the Biden voters, it's going to be mayhem. There's going to be rioting, looting, burning down neighborhoods. It's in the best interest for all of us, I think, to have a winner, a clear winner on November 3rd. But given the surge of mail in ballots, such a clear resolution could end up being wishful thinking. My friends, the way 2020 has gone so far seems much more likely our republic is going to be stress tested in ways that will shake the foundations of our political institutions and challenge the genius of our founding documents to their very core. Thanks for listening to the Best of Buck Daily Podcast. For more Buck, head to BuckSexton.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. Biden may be hiding in the basement, but Trump's out there feeling good, cleared for takeoff, and he's all over the place right now, making sure he brings his message to the American people to just tell us what to expect how these last few weeks are going to look, how the president's doing and how the campaign's going to really work to shape its message in these final moments. We got Tim Murtaugh with us now. He is the director of communications for the Trump campaign. Tim, great to have you back. Great to be with you, Buck. Thanks, as always. Tell us, what are we expecting tonight out on the campaign trail? Where's the president going to be and and what's uh, what's going to be the primary message? Uh, The president's going to be in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, for another rally like he was in Florida last night. And he's going to keep hitting the campaign trail with all the energy and enthusiasm that you might expect from President Trump. Pennsylvania tonight, and then he's on to Des Moines, Iowa on Wednesday, Greenville, North Carolina, Thursday. Friday, he's got two events, one in Ocala, Florida, and one in Macon, Georgia. And we anticipate that the president's going to keep up this schedule and only ramp up further. And really, the closing argument boils down to this. President Trump has accomplished more in 47 months than Joe Biden has in 47 years as a failure as a Washington, D.C. politician. That's really the nut of it. And everyone knows that the president built the world's best economy once, and he's already doing it a second time. Joe Biden has been an economic disaster through his almost five decades in Washington, and now he wants to raise taxes by $4 trillion and impose the Green New Deal on everybody. And so uh, with the economy being really the central point in this whole campaign, the answer is Donald Trump quite clearly, and it's not even close. Tim, can you give us a little a little drill down into Pennsylvania as one of the primary battleground states? And I'm right here in New York. Pennsylvania's next door. Uh, watching this closely, I've got a good friend of mine, Sean Parnell, running for Congress out there. Tell me, uh, how is the Trump campaign looking and and you know who are the final the final uh, tranche of voters in Pennsylvania that you're trying to sway over? I mean, just just give us some expert analysis of of how that essential swing state is looking right now. Well, we love Sean Parnell, first of all, and uh, he's, he's going to do a great job in Congress when, when he wins. Uh, but in, in uh, Pennsylvania, generally, uh, it's a lot of things, actually. First, let me just look at the nuts and bolts of it. 
the ground game that the president has assembled is really second to none in history. It's the largest ground game, 2.4 million volunteers out there knocking on doors, registering voters, and making phone calls. And in Pennsylvania, if you look at registered voters, Democrats versus Republicans, since Election Day 2016, uh, Democrats always have a voter edge, but that gap has narrowed by 200,000 voters. And that's because of the president's ground game registering Republican voters. So we're 200,000 voters better than we were on Election Day 2016. And if you remember, the president won Pennsylvania by about 44,000 votes. And so we've added 200,000 on top of that number. We feel very good about Pennsylvania. Uh, economically, uh, the issues are going to be very important in Pennsylvania. The president built the best economy that Pennsylvania has ever seen, and he's doing it a second time. Uh, Joe Biden voted for NAFTA. That was a job killer in Pennsylvania. Uh, he argued for most favored nation status and helped get China into the World Trade Organization. That cost the United States 60,000 factories and three and a half million jobs. And that is very, very important for a state with a lot of working people like Pennsylvania. And Joe Biden, he may have the support of union executives, the presidents of unions, but President Trump is going to get the union households, the actual union workers. And it's because of a, a number of things. First, the president's real improvement, vastly improving America's standing in our trade deals, getting rid of NAFTA and replacing it with USMCA. Uh, but also, the president's clear championing of American energy industries, and in particular in Pennsylvania, fracking, the natural gas industry, which employs 600,000 Pennsylvanians. Joe Biden, as you know, Buck, uh, has declared war on fossil fuels, and he's teamed up with AOC. He's got his own version of the Green New Deal, and that calls for the end of fossil fuels. And when he's on the campaign trail talking to environmental activists, Joe Biden tells them we're going to end fracking, going to ban fracking. Of course, when he's in Pennsylvania, he tries to hide that. But the truth is Joe Biden's agenda would kill 600,000 jobs in the fracking industry in Pennsylvania. Those, those are the key issues. The president has made great inroads in the Latino community and in the black community because of uh, pre-pandemic uh, unprecedented low, all-time low unemployment in the black community. The economic message cuts across all demographics, and that's how the president is going to win Pennsylvania a second time. We're speaking to Tim Murtaugh, Director of Communications for the Trump campaign. Tim, talk to me about where we stand here with the the controversies, the back and forth over mail-in balloting, universal mail-in balloting, uh, New Jersey, California are going to be doing this. A bunch of other states have been doing it for years. Where where does that issue stand right now? And how much of a concern is it that there could be both uh, fraud and also just ineptitude in terms of being able to execute on this? Well, we have serious concerns about it because, you see, Democrats have been in court in 18 states trying to loosen campaign integrity and loosen the protections uh, against uh, having people have their votes stolen by others committing fraud in elections. When you have Democrat governors uh, and legislatures trying to institute, and they started doing this only three months away from Election Day, universal mail-in voting, which is sending a ballot, a live ballot, to every registered voter, whether they asked for one or not, 
that's not the same thing as traditional absentee by mail voting like they do in Florida and so many other states where people actually request a ballot, and so you know it's an actual voter who wants that ballot. When you mail them out to every registered voter, you know that these voter rolls are notoriously bad. The addresses are wrong. People have moved. Uh, in many cases, people have actually died, and still the ballot gets mailed out. And so you see all these things, and it's never it was never the Postal Service. That was never the issue. That was a complete red herring that the Democrats uh, dreamed up to make people think that there was a war on the post office. No, the issue is you don't know who's going to get their hands on these ballots when they send them out to every registered voter. And secondly, when they get mailed back in, these are local elections offices who have never had to deal with this kind of volume. They're going to be overwhelmed, and there is so much opportunity for fraud. Look what happened in Patterson, New Jersey, where they had their municipal elections this May, where it was the first time that they had used universal mail-in voting, and 20% of the ballots that came in were deemed fraudulent, and a judge actually ordered that election to be done over. Uh, In New York City, those congressional races that took six months to declare a winner because of the flood of mail-in ballots that they weren't expecting, they were only talking about 20,000 ballots. And here in some states, we're going to be talking about millions. And so when you, when you loosen the restrictions and Democrats are trying to actually extend Election Day, move Election Day back a week effectively, giving them a week to count the absentee ballots, and remember what happens when these ballots get mailed out, they get sent out in pre-postage paid envelopes. And when they get mailed back in, they don't get postmarked. So they are not uh, date stamped at all. There's no way to tell when those ballots were mailed. So if you push it back a week, you got a situation where in so many states, Democrats could wake up on the morning after Election Day, see that Donald Trump won the state by, say, 10,000 votes. And now they've got seven whole days to go find 10,001 votes to try to put Joe Biden over the top. It absolutely paves the way and practically invites cheating and fraud. That's what we're concerned about, and so that's why we've been in court fighting against the Democrats who are in there trying to loosen these regulations and loosen loosen the protections, and we'll be ready on Election Day and beyond to fight off whatever uh, chicanery the Democrats have in store. That's what I was going to ask you about next, Tim, so it's a perfect transition. What happens if you know the campaign, the Trump campaign, the, the results come in, And you all declare, okay, you know, God willing, uh, that the president is going to be the president for four more years. And the Democrats refuse to have that concession call from Joe Biden and say, nope, we don't know when we don't know how many mail in ballots are out there. So we all have to sit. Yeah, I mean, we're we're ready for that to happen. You see. Notable Democrats like Hillary Clinton even telling Joe Biden that he should not concede under any circumstances. So we're absolutely ready for that eventuality that Biden won't concede. And this will be a big court fight and going down, you know, sort of reminiscent of 2000 and Bush and Gore. And we have been for a long time, well more than a year putting together the team that's going to be be doing this. Of course, we'll have, we'll have poll watchers in, in the uh, voting places, which is a common practice for both sides, making sure that the rules are being followed when people are actually casting their votes. But for the days after Election Day, we're going to have thousands upon thousands of volunteer attorneys uh, helping us do this. And, and we know that we're going to have to be in court battling this because the Democrats are going to make it so, and we have to be ready to answer them. We're also going to be challenging a lot of the crazy things that the Democrats are going to want to be doing after Election Day, and we'll be anticipating a lot of their crazy maneuvers and and be ready to try to stop them from doing it, because we know there is nothing that Democrats like to do in the world more than trying to change the rules of the game while the game is in progress 
or even after the game is supposed to be over. And we know that, and we will have thousands upon thousands uh, of lawyers and other volunteers ready to go. It's all being run out of uh, out of the campaign and also at the RNC. And I think you and your listeners should rest assured that there, there is no dirty trick that we have not uh, anticipated from the Democrats, and we will be ready. Tim Murtaugh, Director of Communications for Donald Trump's campaign, folks. Tim, great stuff. Good luck. Come back, talk to us soon. Anytime, Buck. Thank you very much.